Please note that this podcast is intended to give advice to ostomates. The information given is based on personal experiences and should not be taken as clinical advice. Please consult with your stoma care nurse if you are in need of medical advice. to let's talk episode five and this show is brought to you by pelican healthcare a manufacturer of stoma care products and their new pouch mojo v go to their website to check it out pelicanhealthcare.co.uk link will be provided in the bio and with me today i have ellie who goes under mazelle 12 and i have ali who goes under ali underscore three underscore b on instagram and i'm louise your host Crohn's fighting. So today's podcast, we are going to be talking about Barbie butt surgery and recovery. It's going to cover the good, the bad and the ugly because nobody's ever probably going to want to hear that nothing ever quite goes wrong or if everything is perfect. Um, Ellie had her surgery. You're two, three years post-op now, aren't you, Barbie butt? I was March... 2018 so yeah no 2019 2019 I was gonna say I could have sworn you was after me so 2019 yeah you're right I was like oh that would have been quick after a stay in the surgery wouldn't it just just the suddenly having a flashback to all those messages that I was getting on (laughs) messenger after just before you was going to get yours done and I was thinking no you definitely had yours after me it wasn't before no she wouldn't have been messaging me (laughs) She got she got me through that one, folks. Yeah, she has. <laughs> and what about you, Ali? How far post off are you now? I uh, I had my the Barbie butt surgery at the back end of 2020. So two stoma surgeries in 2020. I started off in January 2020 with um like a uh, what do they call it defunctioning stoma like ileostomy, and then ten months later they're like, nah, this ain't working. You need to have the real deal poptectomy it is and I had that in November 2020 and that's an interesting story which I'll share oh they're all interesting stories <laughs> so obviously I've been living with Crohn's disease like nearly 20 years wow if I'd have gone back to 18 year old me and yeah. if I'd now told 18 year old me that I was going to one be having a permanent stoma yeah two, die after having a c-section oh. and three have like nearly 40 surgeries 18 year old me be going yeah you're right love yeah <laughs> you don't you would never imagine that you could get through it but you do get through it but it's really mm. freaking tough I think you, you I think the internet has come such a long way. I mean, yeah. when I was diagnosed in two, like 2003, there was no Facebook, wow. there was no Instagram. There was nothing. You on your own out there, really. I think, yeah, but I think a lot of us felt alone, especially with yeah. those early diagnoses back then. There just wasn't the support system that you have. And don't get me wrong, the, the support system can be good and it can be bad. Yeah. Not everybody has a positive online experience but being able to do things now such as the Instagram awareness accounts or the Facebook or even being able to do this podcast it helps so many other people because being able to listen to other people's stories and then cherry pick what you want to take out of that to do your own research I think is a lot better than using Dr Google because let's face it 
whenever you put anything in Google, you're not going to get the best case scenario. Yeah. It's the worst case scenario with a little we'll bit of do it. in. <laughs> we all still Google it, don't we? Even though our, even the doctors in hospital, they're like, don't Google that. Well, I've just told you, don't Google it. And then you're like, secretly. Yeah. My surgeon was like, all Google roads lead to cancer. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, it really does. I think that's the thing, right? I, I think um, just touching on the great, uh, Bow Babe recently she she's done amazing things for just opening up the conversation about talking about poo right because it is still you know it's still a stigma but she's kind of broken down massive barriers in that front but it's also to say that you know IBD is really prominent and it's, it's sadly it's a growing you know we're a growing community this diagnosis is growing epidemic is what it is yeah, you're mm. right you're right and th- and there needs to be these conversations because when you find blood and mucus and you've got an upset tummy every day and I was living on Imodium to get out the door to drop my daughter to school or even get to work you just kind of deal with all of that don't you and suppress it and get on with it because you possibly get scared to go to the doctor because you think it might be the big c but actually, mm. there's a whole heap of other stuff that you can get treated and early diagnosis. I think that's why I wanted to come on and speak. Early diagnosis is so crucial for any of us. I was I was really late. My body just kind of was gave way and, and then it was all all kind of game over, really. But um, yeah, I think early diagnosis is crucial. So things like this are really good. Yeah, and I think a lot of people say as well that like things like IBD, you tend to get diagnosed quite early. But I was like, you, yeah, I was 38 before I got a diagnosis. Yeah. And the second you see blood, your head goes straight to cancer. And it doesn't matter what anyone tells you until you know any different. That's just yeah. the way it is. And like you say, people like Deborah breaking down the barrier of talking about poo because no, and you still see people. I saw her interviewed on quite a few things before she passed away. And she kind of like you'd see people sort of just going <laughs> like who we're talking to and I'm like oh really come yeah. on <laughs> you know it's yeah. just poo and I know it's like it's 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 a well it's that you know talking about going to the toilet and toilet stuff but you need to do it because there were so many people I know like including my husband's uncle who yeah. over lockdown buried his head in the sand didn't yeah. go and then ended up basically very sadly dying of um cancer like two oh, no. like two months after diagnosis oh. It's, it's, um, it's bad though because my mum always has a go at us because me and my brother and obviously my husband, we, we've got the toilet humour down to a tee and there's nothing better than a family picnic on a beach and we're all talking about bowel habits and like Christmas. Yeah, yeah. And my mum's like, well, you lot just shut up. That is disgusting. <laughs> and like my mum's like sitting there with her ears like, la, 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 la. And like, yeah. we're, we're bad, like really bad. And it's yeah. like my brother's just recently been diagnosed with Crohn's disease okay. and my, my brother is in his early 30s. Yeah. I've been telling him for the last 10 years to go and get checked because even though he's my half brother, that the, the half of us is obviously from, yeah. from, from the Crohn's side of things is from the dad side of the family. Yeah. Mm. So obviously my, my brother his dad is my uncle so my dad is their stepdad's brother so if you kind of walk along the kind of thing like you know if it's going to come from anywhere it's going to come from that side and my brother having issues for years but with covid lockdown trying to get my brother dealt with at A&E was absolutely horrendous because my mother looks like a healthy in his 30s yeah he looks like a healthy 30 year old man because he works out he goes to the gym he's yeah. really 
trim, but he's got all these other issues, and they're trying to tell him he's having a heart attack, and he's like, it's not a heart attack. It's really not. It's the other end, yeah. It's, it's the other end. But, you know, it, it took us three months of me having to go Garrity at his doctor surgery and for him to get have for him to have me as his next of kin to get him dealt with because they wouldn't listen to the family history from him. Yeah, so that's the key thing, right? So I was back and forth. So I did go to the doctor. So I'd obviously been suffering for a while. I think it was after pregnancy, really. And when I went back to work, I was quite stressed. And um, well, my bowel habits changed at that point massively. Literally was living on Imodium to get out the door in the morning. Eventually did go to the doctors. They did a regular blood test, all samples. Everything came back fine. So she was like, oh, you're just stressed, you know, uh, do you, you know, do you, what do you do? Yeah, you're stressed. And just put it down to that. And the GPs, you know, they just don't open you up to thinking, you know, about Crohn's disease. So even when I had my first perianal abscess and it wasn't healing, that's a massive red flag of, for Crohn's, for us Crohn's sufferers, right? It's a huge mm. uh, flag for that to start investigating. And then when I, eight months after having that first surgery, finally got diagnosis because I was just broke down at the hospital and I was like, I can't take anymore. Like, what is going on in my body? Um, and they finally started to put me on treatment and, and give things a go and diagnose it. And then the doctor was like, oh, yeah, I did wonder if it might have been Crohn's. And you're like, did you not? Did you? Did you not think that eight months before? Because I was exactly the same pre-diagnosis. I had the cellulitis on the legs, the extreme weight I had loss, cellulitis. the stomach cramps, the severe diarrhea. Such a club you don't sore, want to be a part of, isn't yeah, it? The very sore back end, yeah. rashes, mouth ulcers, rashes in the mouth, face sores, everything. And they sent me to the mental health team and dietitians because they said I was anorexic. I was like, but I like my food. Uh, so anorexia comes up a lot, right? Because yeah. And that's the other thing. So when I started, first started hearing about the word Crohn's and colitis or IBD being bantered around from a hospital uh, stake, so I was just in and out of hospital from that first surgery. And I started Googling it and all the symptoms come up, weight loss. I've always been quite, you know, healthy looking shall we say um I've never I've never been super slim so I was like oh well it absolutely can't be me because of that list and I I think that list I I think we need to help health professionals to update that list because it's weight weight gain can actually be a symptom of Crohn's not weight loss because you retain a lot of water true I do actually I always have retained a load of water you've educated me on that I didn't know that see and I'm four years into the journey I didn't know about the water thing it's it's a thing, but that's also why they regularly test people with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease and why blood indications are a good marker. Because right. even though we're retaining fluids, the stuff that does leave is um, drains our potassium, it drains all our minerals, magnesium, it drains everything out of your body. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that look, this is why we need to do these things, right? Because then it just... These are things that you don't find when you sit down and you've got a 15, con- 15 minute consultation with your surgeon or with your IBD specialist, because it's just based on that, you know, that symptom there and then. Um, it's yeah, there's so many different layers. To it, so it is really good to, to open up the conversation for sure. Yeah, I think most people think that proctectomy surgery is going to be it and that is going to cure 
everything and to be honest protectomy surgery is always used as a last resort but the thing is it may alleviate some symptoms it might help with some certain things especially those of us with perianal Crohn's disease where the worst of it is in the back end yeah but Crohn's always jump ship it it it, it oh. doesn't just doesn't just stick to that part. It goes, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to that other bit of bowel that was nice and healthy and I'm going to start yeah. having, having, having a party up there. Yeah. But it's the same with ulcerative colitis. But proctectomy sur- surgery is not necessarily a cure, is it, Ellie? Because there, there are other issues, especially that women face after having that surgery done. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and a lot of things that you don't necessarily get told about before surgery as well. I mean, I think my post-stoma surgery was worse because I wasn't warned about like we already did a, a podcast on how it affects your menstrual cycle and all that kind of thing wasn't warned about that or the fact that even though it feels like it's a very obvious thing the fact that all of your organs shift about in that cavity once you've had something removed oh, which yeah. means my uterus is tilted backwards which makes things like smear tests an absolute nightmare but after protectomy surgery or completion protectomy it's it's different on a whole other level just because I don't know it did resolve a lot of issues because like you say with colitis it's just like in your colon so once that's gone it goes but the extra intestinal stuff that you have beforehand like you said things like joint issues down to whatever meds you've been on I haven't been on a lot of meds but I had other things like my stomach wasn't very good um and that was kind of all linked to it my skin I've still got skin and eye problems that was linked to it so I have um just I get really sore and itchy sometimes um I get really dry skin and I started getting patches of eczema which I never got before and there was just these sort of other things outside of your gut that are affected by from your immune system from colitis that then remain after you've had your colon out because they're just in your body elsewhere so it does it's not as bad as Crohn's it doesn't jump to other parts of your digestive system in that way unless you've got Crohn's colitis um but if it's just pure UC you just have all of the other immune system niggles like fatigue like you know all these things that have just been a part of it before you've had your colon out those don't go away so you still technically this is why there was a there was quite a um, big thing about an American doctor consultant saying it's not a cure. Don't ever use the word cure with IBD because it's not. It's like you will always have that chronic illness. You will always have elements of it. It just means that you don't have the physical symptoms of having a battered colon. So, yeah, I mean, it affects in different ways, but you definitely live with things afterwards, for sure. This is what I don't understand, though, because there are a lot of surgeons and I've seen it firsthand. I've witnessed it, yeah. especially after having Maisie and I had the bowel resections and the stoneman. He was like, I've cured your Crohn's disease. So I'm like, well, now I'm worried. And he's like, well, oh. why are you worried? I was like, well, what have you actually done? I said, well, you're saying that you've cured my Crohn's. I said, because Crohn's isn't curable. So how can mm. you stand there and say that? At the bottom Taking of out your whole digestive tract, right? <laughs> Just FYI, this isn't the surgeon that done my my stone in 2016 and my this, this was a totally different general surgeon. And it, it it worries me because if people are being told that they're cured after you know, after like nearly dying and being left with a stone and an open wound and that kind of stuff, and you're on ICU in the high dependency unit yeah. and they're going, Well, I've cured yeah. you this, and I'm like, I beg your pardon. No, you haven't. <laughs> yeah what the hell <laughs> what's going on about and that's the thing because a lot of people say yes go for the protectomy surgery but 
it's so incredibly draining. When my surgeon first said to me, it's going to take between nine months to a year for me to feel totally human after having my proctectomy surgery, I thought he was having me on. Mm. Because I bounced back so quick after having my temp stone replaced. Yeah, but when you look back, that's yeah. nothing in comparison. Yeah, to that was nothing. That was exactly it. I was like, when I first had that temp stoma, I was like, oh gosh, this is, and I was in a bit of a mess. Like psychologically, it really affected me massively. And I was really upset. I'd gone through a breakup and, and everything at that time. And then, but fast forward, like what you're saying. And I was like, that was a breeze. <laughs> that was a breeze in comparison. Dare I say that? But, you know, that's there's, my there's a lot of stuff they don't tell you with having proctectomy surgery. Obviously, I know for myself, because of the amount of surgery that I've had, I know for me, post-op ileus is always one of the first things that happens to me after having my bowels played with. And I'm stubborn and I'm obstinate and I refuse to have an NG tube admitted just for the simple oh. fact of there is nothing worse than being lucid and having to swallow that tube down the back of your nose into your gut. I'm not being funny. If they want to put an oh, NG tube in me, Whilst I'm asleep, that's absolutely fine because I think that's something psychologically that you can deal with once you've woken up because there's nothing you can do about it. But when they're basically pinning you down to a bed and they're really barbaric, they're forcing you to swallow that, I'll say no because at the end of the day, the post-opulus is going to pass at some point. But that's the thing because opioids cause it, opioids cause the post-opulus. And the only way to clear the ileus is to try and get all of the opioids that they've put you on out of your system for your bowel to jumpstart and awake. And okay, just be warned. There's always a disclaimer in this. We're not medical professionals, but anybody that's kind of been through this journey, especially if you keep track and you keep note of what you've been through, you you can pinpoint what's going to happen. And what's nine days of ileus versus having an NG (laughs) shoved down the back of your throat? (laughs) No, completely. Those NG, I remember waking up in uh, ICU and um, with that NG tube, and it was a really big one as well. And I literally, I couldn't even swallow. I was gagging all the time. Anyway, I ended up on TPN, and I mean, so much, so much happened. I'll, um, yeah, it, it's just important for people to realise. I think the message I'd like to get out there for people going through protectomy surgery is: I'd gone in. I'll give you a little bit. I'd gone in for mine at the back end of twenty twenty was scheduled to have it it was all it was elective at that point I'd be in and out within two to three weeks um and I'd read all the stories about some people that had ended up in for a couple of months and I was like I can't I'm a single mum I have to get home like I have to be well just prepare because um I went in for that and I was in through the height of the pandemic all over Christmas didn't see couldn't see anyone was in ICU within three weeks of having that first protectomy surgery, which did, which did go well. So I had an, an ileostomy closed and an end colostomy formed. And because um, my, my colon was healthy enough to, to give that a go. Um, recovery was going okay. I was getting up out of bed with physio and all of that jazz, you know, with all your, all your extra bags and drains. I woke up, I had no clue about drains. I didn't know about drains until that surgery happened. They're not spoken enough about drains. <laughs> wow. That was an education. I, I was like, oh, what is that? And then I was start, I pulled and then I was like, oh, that's like inside. And I had like six drains in my stomach. And then I was like, what is this? So that was a whole education. So 
I mean, you do get educated in hospital life for sure. And I was lucky enough to be around other patients that were just so helpful, all going through different stuff, but so helpful with their journeys. And it, and it just opens your mind, you know, your eyes out. Anyway, um, fast forward the three weeks and I had been down for a dressing change on the proctectomy site. So I was going in for that weekly at the point at that point. And then I woke up literally screaming in agony. It was about eight o'clock at night. And the pain, I don't want to get emotional on this, but the pain that I felt was the most horrendous pain that I've ever, ever known. And it it caused me to literally just be screaming in in the ward. And I was like, something's really, really wrong. You've got to get, you know, I was running a temperature. I was vomiting. There's nothing to come up. Sadly, it took the next morning to get me on a CT scan. And I was lucky to have made it through that night. And thank God I did. I don't know how, because in that moment, I basically suffered a bowel perforation because of all the opioids. It had blocked everything. And I was eating and drinking the day before. I was actually really hungry, ironically. And um, yeah, it just burst and they removed um, a blockage the size of a baby's head. And I was so lucky to be sitting here now talking to you, honest to God. Um, And I'm so thankful to my surgeon and my team for pulling me through. I mean, they got me through all of that time. It was horrendous. And my family didn't know what the hell was going on. They didn't know if I was going to be coming out in a body bag or if I was going to be gone septic. Yeah, I had, yeah. I was then back in intensive care. Could, you know, just awful. Really, really, really tough time. But, you know, I managed to get through with their care and, and everything. Um, but I did end up with a um, fluid on my lung as well. So I had a lung drain in. I didn't know that was a thing. Sticking drains in your, in your, that was, that was fun. Um, and that's what kept me in then for, you know, for a strong kind of two months all the way through Christmas. My little girl was seven at the time. Um, so it was really, really tough. But once I got home, I felt like I could then start to eat properly. You know, I was on TPN. I mean, there's so many layers for all of us, isn't there? That, you yeah. you know, I didn't even know these things existed. Um, you know, all those different midlines and pick lines and central lines. And I had a great nurse and he was always um, making a joke and he's, you know, talking about the tube lines. He's like, we're going to put a Jubilee line in down here. We're going to do this, going to do that. But all those little things, I had some really beautiful nurses that would just definitely got me through. Um And then when I got out, things were just not right. And I was having daily care, like, you know, daily nurse visits, district nurses coming in. I wasn't healing. I knew something was, was, I had loads of swelling downstairs. I mean, it was just horrendous. And all the skin was starting to split. So I came off my biologics before surgery because they were hoping the surgery would, I don't know about cure me, but they were hoping it would be able to get me off my biologics. And then... um, that wasn't the case because like you said earlier, the Crohn's just goes bananas somewhere else. And unfortunately it did for me. Anyway, ended up back in for a night and they're like, oh, it's just moisture lesions and everything. You'll be fine. Go back home. Was in for one night. And I knew something wasn't right. Then fast forward another couple of weeks, I was back in again. And this time I was like, I, can, I can't even walk around my house. Like, I'm, you know, it was like a snail at the best of times. Getting up and down the stairs was horrendous. Anyway, I picked up Pseudomonas which is a nasty bug that you get in hospital. Um, Anyway, I ended up back in for two weeks. They got rid of all of that. And it was then at that point, at the beginning of May of 2021, when I came home and I actually felt like recovery was starting. 
So that, you know. Yeah, it's not easy, is it? I mean, I've been told by three or four different registrars that vaginal Crohn's doesn't exist. Oh, my God. (laughs) You know, oh, it's so rare. It's all of these things, you know. Um, I mean, it doesn't exist. (laughs) Those with perianal Crohn's disease are more likely to to develop vaginal Crohn's disease. And it is a fight to even get treatment. I know that from personal experience. But it's like my proctectomy surgery, I was really poorly when I had my temporary stone replaced. I was meant to have the full kit and caboodle, but there's no way I would have got through the surgery because each surgery ends up being like 10 hours. Yeah. So when I had my proctectomy surgery, my husband and my mum were incredibly worried because I went missing off of this off of intensive care for a good four hours after having my surgery. Yeah. Um, turns out that they couldn't get my pain under control and I'd gone septic in the space of having that surgery done and going out through intensive care. So I was in, how was I in? I think I think I was in for two and a half weeks when I had yeah. my proctectomy surgery. But obviously because of my postopilius, my stoma started dying. Um, so they were checking my stoma daily because it was um it was sloughing off and it was going black. And obviously that's not what you want to see oh. on a healthy stoma. Yeah. And literally the day before my bowel restarted, those like we're taking you back down to surgery. If your bowel doesn't restart by tomorrow, we're taking you back down to surgery. So I had them on another surgery. Let's, let's let's just give it another 24 hours and see what happens yeah, so they just pump you with like laxatives and stuff at that point um no I'd literally gone kneel by mouth by them so yeah, they, was, they, had, yeah. they had me on fluids and uh, no food or anything because anything I was, the end, drinking no. was coming back up and it was pure green it yeah. was horrendous and my, my husband is actually really good with uh, bedpans as I found out because oh, they'd, um, they'd come to visit me and just as he walked onto the wall I shouted send Maisie out I'm going to be sick I've never seen him send Maisie off of a wall so quick and come back with a bedpan and literally caught me midstream before it hit, oh, <laughs> before wow. it hit the floor and he's currently dancing about in the kitchen flexing muscles <laughs> the thing is with with the protectomy surgery I know I'm not good on meds and obviously I'm allergic to morphine and stuff so they yeah. had oxy and fentanyl and I just wanted off of it oh, so quick I'm the same I just feel so sick I've just got my head in a bowl all the time and then the smell of those paper bowls makes me want to throw up as well <laughs> so I'm like just constantly like Ugh. I think I was more upset about the fact that I'd thrown up a packet of Percy pigs. <laughs> what a waste. I was just going to say, what a waste. such a waste of food. Um, but the other thing that they don't warn you about, and like um, Ali said about the drains, if you're a regular in hospital and you've had surgery, you know about yeah. the drains, you know it's going to be something that you wake up with. But actually to wake up with them in and when you've and got several, it's not nice because yeah they might have put them in while she was under but they've got to take them out when you lose it <laughs> and isn't that a treat I, I had an amazing nurse in A&E in the intensive care sorry and he kind of he just did it really quick and then he was like he, I know he felt so bad for doing it but it, it had to be it has to be done right and you do get yourself in this frame of mind of like just do what you do and I think it's always all right the first time is when think- you know what's coming I think think the worst experience was having my butt drain removed because obviously that was that was between your cheeks there's no disguising the fact that you've got a drum inserted uh drum drain (laughs) drum drain inserted between your bottom you had extras between your bottom cheeks 
And the thing is, you can feel that coming out. And I swear they put them in quite deep because I think the nurse was actually gaining purchase on my bed rail with her feet at the time to take that oh, drain. Did they not give you? So I had two. So anyone that's listening, in terms of drains, I have on my surgical team, I had this lovely, lovely uh, one of the registrars on the team. And I told you I'd had a bad experience removing the long drain the first time. It really hurt and it was it was just horrible. So I was terrified having it done again because they'd had to put another drain in because it hadn't worked. And I was absolutely petrified. And he taught me all through it. And he he did give me, a, I was adamant I didn't want to take anything because I just wanted to stay clear of opioids. But he was like, look, just have like half a dose of morphine. I'll tell you when to breathe, what to do. And he taught me all through it. I had that little shot of morphine and I didn't feel it. And it was amazing. And that's a shout out to to Will on the surgical team at, at um, UCLH. He was just brilliant at that time. And, and I'll never forget that. It makes a difference, doesn't it? When you're going through yeah. so much. I always, I always kind of feel bad. Like I, I just, we say we talk about the good, the bad and the ugly. So here's the good side for anyone listening who's, yeah. having, who's having Barbie butt surgery. I was relatively okay. I, because I went into it well, because it was elective. I'd done a year of research and I was like, yeah, I'm good with side effects of carrying on with a butt. Thanks. So I decided to have it all removed and keep my stoma. And the option for me of a J pouch, I just, I mean, no disrespect to anyone who chooses that, but I was just, I, it, for me personally, I couldn't live with the things that you usually have to live with with the J pouch. I was like, no, nah, I'm good. Um, and I have a very good stoma because my surgeon was awesome. So I was like, great, we'll just have this done. Um, I had it done at St. George's in South London. Um, which is a teaching hospital. So they are, they're pretty good. But I went in in the morning and uh, the anaesthetist popped in and said, um, she was talking to me for, you know, you have the, um, what kind of anaesthetic it's going to be. Yeah. And she was like, right, well, we need to do your epidural. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> she said, you know, we need to do your epidural pre-surgery. I was like, no one told me about an epidural. And she was like, have you not got Mr. Uh, and named this random guy as your surgeon? I was like, no. And she went, oh, I'm with the wrong person. Sorry. I was like, oh, wow. If this is a sign oh. of things to come, I'm not. And I panicked and I was like, huh. and then my surgeon came in and said, no, I'll tap block you when you're under. We don't do it. She doesn't do it personally, preemptively. She's like, she tap blocks once I'm sedated. That's, so that was the first fun moment. Um, yeah but like because I think the difference with me is because I went in well whereas with my stoma surgery I was so ill it got to a point where they were like if we don't do this surgery you're gonna die basically but when I went for my elective I was okay so I think that helps because I didn't have any active colitis at that point um so it's a bit of a different experience if you don't have active disease at the time um but then with drains like you guys talking about drains I'd luckily I'd found the online stoma community I hadn't didn't know it before my stoma surgery and I'd spoken to a lot of people about drains and she basically said to me in a pre-surgical appointment she said I don't understand and obviously everyone is different again like Louise said we're not medical professionals every person is different everyone's history is different but she said for people in your position I don't really understand why surgeons drain out of the bum because you can do a fluid drain for the abdomen through the abdomen you don't need to go through the butt wound for, for barbie butt surgery and she said sometimes in if, if someone if there's like scar tissue inside and you can't reach it out the top that's, yeah, a, that's yeah, me. with Louise exactly <laughs> so if there's a lot of scar tissue where you've had multiple surgeries then it can't come out the abdomen but she said if there's a way out just ask for it because a lot of people they do trust their surgeons their doctors they don't think to just sort of ask the question 
So she said to me, I'll be doing your drain out of your abdomen. So it was out of, I'd had my fistula this side for my stoma surgery, obviously, because I had a bit of floating colon that was still active. Um, and they yoked everything out through there rather than through my butt. So I had a drain on my left side, my stoma on my right, and then everything down under was sewn up. But with the drain removal, this is like she came in, the nurse, when she was doing it. And my recovery was a lot more painful than stoma surgery because I was in a healthy place. Like I hadn't felt it then. I was like, oh, but back then it was like amazing. I feel great. This time I was like, oh, give me drugs. And luckily <laughs> I don't I don't badly react to morphine, but I don't like the addictive side of it. So I wanted to get off it ASAP. And I was on a renal ward because they have no other beds. I was in, I woke up in the recovery area. And because I wasn't poorly, I didn't have to be in ICU. But in recovery, I remember, you know, that really sleepy feeling when you wake up and you're just constantly dozing back off. Every time I dozed off, I stopped breathing. So every time I dozed off, my alarms went off and they just kept running over and running over. They're like, you need to stop sleeping. I was like, what? <laughs> no. So they ended up with me on a renal ward because it was the only bed in the hospital that was left. Um, but she came in with a drain tray and she was like, well, I'm taking a drain out. And she went, this is going to hurt. I was like, Hmm. <laughs> um, and she did it and she just went right breathing and I didn't feel a thing and she hadn't given me any drugs I was on fentanyl I think at this point before I went on to paracetamol but it was it was absolutely I didn't feel it and it was like I didn't feel the first time around actually either when they took them all out from my first surgery but I think again that's the opposite side of it so it can go one of two ways um, but the important thing that I took away from this and what I've said because I do a lot of patient advocacy I speak to patients after surgery or people who are making the decision whether or not to have a barbie belt done um is you can take control to a certain extent of what's happening to you you can question things like drain placement you can you know you can ask if there's another way to do it um and you can actually have a little bit of input into your own recovery um and I don't think that's clear in a lot of situations yeah that's not always clear yeah, I think because of all the scar tissue that I have in my pelvis, mm. I always wake up with several different drains. Yeah. And I think because of the post-op ileus and because of the idyllysis that they do every time they go in, they take scar tissue out because they have to take the scar tissue out to be able to get in. It's just I always wake up with several drains. And I'll, to be perfectly fair, my drains had been in for 12 days before they took them out. They took my drains out. The butt one was the day before I went home. The ones that I had in my pelvis were taken out the day I was discharged. So they'd been in a while (laughs) before they took them out. And there's nothing better than when they take the catheter out. I think that's always the worst thing. I think once the catheter is out, you kind of know that you're on the road to recovery. Yeah, it's horrible. And it's just... um, you know, don't get me wrong, I do some weird and fantastical things when I'm under drugs. I was on the intensive care <laughs> unit. They were ringing my husband because or is it because I've got I've got hospital-based PTSD. Whenever I'm on intensive care, I tend to go a little bit loopy. So I have a massive panic attack. Um, so they're ringing my husband up at random hours of the morning, telling him that I've cut my pyjama legs off. I, I, I had... Random things. 
I had a stoma bag. I had a stoma kit with me when I went into hospital and I had a pair of scissors. And because of all the drains and everything that I had in, I thought, me being me, I tried to upstate that if I cut the legs off of my pyjama bottoms, yeah. that I'd at least be able to have something that was covering my lady parts with all the drains coming out of me. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I I do some weird and fantastical things. And I think the other thing that people need to expect from yourself when you're having that proctectomy surgery, you are going to be incredibly grumpy after you've had that surgery done because it is painful. I mean, I had my stoma refashioned. So I've gone from having a loop to an end ileostomy. So I've been opened up along the, the midline section that I've been opened up so many times before. I'd had scar tissue removed from my vagina and from my pelvis. I'd had other stuff taken out via my butt and I'd had that closed up. So I, I think give, given given the grounds at the time, I think you're allowed to be a little bit narky as long mm. as you're not rude to the hospital staff. I was never rude to them, but I might have been rude to the people that I love when they're coming to see me. I might have been a little bit tit- twitchy, should, should the word say. And you like... Ellie said, you, yeah, you can take control to a certain point. I know when I went in to see the anaesthetist, my mum and my auntie came in with me and they're going to the anaesthetist, just give her all the drugs. And I'm going, no, you give me what you feel best because I can't have morphine. The only options that you've got for me are, that I know of are the obviously the fentanyl and the oxy because you can't do an epidural because that doesn't work because it always comes out. Um, so they said that they was going to put a spinal tap in me. They always do something on your abdomen as well. So they numb, they, they basically numb it the whole way around. Yeah. So it kind of eases off as, as you start recovering. It's normally like a 36 or 48 hour thing or whatever they do. But my spinal tap, the back end didn't work, the, the one that they put in me. And I knew it was gonna, wasn't going to work. And I said it wasn't going to work. Guess who was right? Yeah. Um, but the, the thing is, what to expect in hospital? Expect that most people, um, especially with this, because even though it's classed as an elective surgery, yes, it's been planned, but it's also something that you need to have done. It's not the case of I've elected to have this surgery and put myself through this. Yeah. It's just the case that it's being done on a planned schedule rather than an emergency schedule and the things that you've got with the planned surgery that will always work better in your favor is your stoma placement yeah the drug placement the post-op recovery time roughly how long you can expect to spend in hospital along with the fact that yes this sounds brutal but most surgeries especially if you're having it early in the morning they will expect to at least have you up and out of your bed that night even if it's only sitting for 20 seconds, because the quicker you get up, the quicker you move, the quicker you recover. And there are lots of fantastic things. So those of you having proctectomy surgery done, research a valley cushion, by far the best thing that you can get to help you with sitting and getting back to normal when you get home. You can rent them. Some stoma companies or delivery companies are kind enough to give them to you on a rental basis. You can ask at the hospital, but it is incredibly difficult to get hold of a Valley Cushion in hospital. So your best bet is to contact Valley Cushion Direct or to speak with your delivery company. They might be able to provide you with one of those free of charge because they are 
quite expensive. Anybody that does have a look at a valley cushion price online, just you have do. some tissues ready. <laughs> yeah, you definitely need that because I, I didn't even know about that stuff. And, and luckily they managed to track one down. Um, but I, I couldn't really see. I mean, I wasn't even getting out of bed and whatnot. But it was a bit of a different journey. But oh. it's like other things like like to aid with post-op recovery. Eat little and often. Eat high protein. Carbs just dodge you up. Oh, I can't stand them. And if my surgeon does one cow, have you tried the one cow? Oh my god! I remember my dietitian saying, "Alison, you need to get something down." Because I lost like eleven kilos when I went in for my surgery, and she was like, "It's one cow. You just like do a little shot. It's like cream." I was like, "Is it really?" So I was like, tried it, and I was like, "This is nothing. You can just you know anything. It's it's medicinal, isn't it? Nothing medicinal tastes good." Um, but yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't take it. I just couldn't, nor the Ensures in the end. I, I was fine with the Ensures pre-op and then, oh my gosh, I couldn't, I think I'm, I, I just couldn't get them down me. I save them for visiting time and my husband drinks them for me and then I just pretend that I have. But I can't tolerate the Ensures. They just make my stoma flush and there's nothing worse than being in hospital and then having dehydration issues and flushing issues because obviously you need to your 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 output has to hit a certain consistency before they will discharge you and I'm sorry but my output has always been like water and I have to argue my case every time that they discharge me because the stoma nurse is like I'm not letting you up because it's like this and I have to get my scopes get my stoma nurse and my surgeon to confirm it's always like that yeah 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 it but it's crazy it's like um so like other things after proctectomy surgery when can you drive best advice would be wait until eight weeks post-op because if you try driving before then and you get in an accident your insurance company will not cover you yeah yeah it's important I mean look that that's like a great story if you could get up and drive at six weeks I couldn't even I was barely even walking it took me, you know, six months to be able to but because I had pseudomonas all these underlying things so all I'd say is like really listen to your body because at the end I was I'd emailed my surgeon and my head gastro and they they really had my back so I've got a relationship with them so they just got the team on it straight away and I was admitted and then they everything got sorted out and they were brilliant but um there's just so just listen to your body if you're not feeling right you definitely have to just get yourself back in if you're not feeling right don't mess about and Mm -hmm. yeah like for me I think it was about eight months before I could drive again well, it's like the other thing for women as well, obviously, because we're all women do it, doing this podcast about Barbie about surgery. There's going to be weird and fantastical and horrible things and smells coming out of your vagina. Be prepared because I get asked this question yeah. a lot and it's only off of the back of a blog post that I actually done that I don't get asked that as many times because I tend to refer people to the back to the blog post. Yeah. But you've got to think of it as they've basically closed an extra organ. Yeah. But they've closed your rectum. That's where some things normally come out of. So the only logical escape route is via the vagina. I'm sorry to say this, but it is a thing. Uh, sanitary towels. Um, the, what's or, the other things? That the, Not the, the dailies. Yeah. Anything like that in your knickers after having the surgery, great. Do not use Fem Fresh. Do not use Fem Wipes. 
Do not try and wash anything out because it will completely and utterly destroy your vagina and you will probably require something to try and rectify Mm. any damage that you have caused. If you are worried and if you are worried it is an infection, go to your GP. It's not going to be comfortable that they will automatically test you for bacterial vaginosis and a chlamydia swab. They come back. If it's bacterial vaginosis, they can give you antibiotics. If it's not, then it's a case of you're just going to have to allow that to pass and clear up. It took a while for mine to clear up. I think it was six months before Harmony was restored. Yeah, Yeah, it does take a while. I think also it massively has affected my monthly cycle. I've had horrendous periods since having the proctectomy surgery, but it's really hard to get people to say, oh, yeah, you know, Oh, that that doesn't normally happen. But I'm sure, calling all the ladies out there, I'm sure it does happen to... Your hormones will go to absolute shite. Had really heavy, really heavy cycle and really painful. Really painful. I think think the hormonal side of things, I think that part of the recovery, whether you don't know whether you're coming or going and the issues with the periods, it doesn't happen to everybody, but I know for the three of us, I know for a fact, and I know Ellie for one as well, we don't have a normal cycle. It does not come out unless we're sitting and first period post-op, that is enough to put the willies up (laughs) anyone because I think a bloodbath would be the correct way to describe it. Um, And the thing is as well, because of the swelling that's going on down there, sex can be painful for anywhere between a year to 18 months post-op until all of the swelling completely subsides. Do not do a Louise. Do not try four weeks post-op and then what <laughs> on earth she did to herself. Oh, my gosh. Um, be like Ellie. Be sensible. Message Louise and ask about Wait. these things before proceeding. <laughs> I think after all of that surgery, it just puts you off for life anyway. Like, gosh. Uh, there's a lot of things that can happen to me. I don't think it would put me off. <laughs> <laughs> I was fine after the tent placement. I thought it would have been the same rules apply, obviously. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> but it's it's like the issues like with the periods and stuff. I've only just started using tampons. I'm nearly four years post-op. Yeah. And I'm kind of regretting my decision to start using the tampons because before the tampons, I didn't flood. Since I've been using the tampons, I've been flooding like anyone's business. Like, yeah, it's, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because... um. I, used to, I, I never used to have any problems with my periods at all. Like, you know, and I would always use Tampax, always. And then, you you know, you just get on with stuff. But it's it's just been very different. Very That's experience. Lilettes are better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I get the proper ick about sticking my finger up there. So I always go with the old tampons. But um, it's the pain for me more than the flow. Yeah, the flow hasn't pain. really changed. But the pain is so much more since that surgery like you get that like a weight in where was your back passage there's like just a weight on that now so like isn't there like phantom get phantom what is it phantom Phantom, rectum yeah like phantom but you can get that I had yeah I mean I don't think I've had that and I've heard that it's super painful and like there's ways that people ease it luckily touch wood I've not had it yet but the whole period thing is like I think my flow and my the time I have it are pretty yeah. similar. I use tampons quite soon afterwards, but that's because again I don't have a lot of scar tissue inside. Um, but the pain, like pre-surgery, I would take 
couple of neurofoam when it hit and that would sort me for the whole sort of three or four days I'm on but now I'm back to backing for a codamol every four hours through my entire period and even then it sometimes breaks through a little bit and I think that is quite a lot like they don't really kind of tell you about how it's going to affect your menstrual cycle um and it does it does and it's it's not great but again you just deal don't you the yeah. thing that affected me was post-op, I started having infections and the infections were caused by the retained blood because of the ledge. And now because I found out that obviously the, the my, my scar tissue has obviously come through my cervix and is actually sitting in my vaginal canal, which I'm getting checked on Monday. Um, it's kind of acting as a ledge. The so stuff isn't always coming out. So I've had mm-hmm. antibiotics several times to treat the infections that I have had in, in my lady garden. When I went and had my call changed, I had the marina, kept it in for nearly a year, didn't get on with it. I couldn't deal with the phantom pregnancy. So I went back to the old copper coil. It was then when she'd done that, she's like, oh, she said, why did they not pick this up last time? Obviously, there's scar tissue. It's coming down through your cervix. I'm going to have to use a shorter coil. I can't use the long one. So I'm only going to be able to give you the five-year one. I'm like, don't care as long as I'm protected. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just put it in. <laughs> and she was like, have you tried tampons? And I was like, well, no, because it always used to make my Crohn's worse. I always used to feel like using tampons during my cycle, especially when I was playing with my Crohn's. It used to make things 20 times worse. It used to feel sick, nauseous. Really? Yeah. So I didn't use them. And obviously now the worst of my Crohn's has cleared up, especially from the back end. I've started using them, which is absolutely fine because obviously I'm not getting the retention issue that I was having. Yeah. Uh, I've now been covered by the fact that my periods used to be heavy. I've been used to nothing coming out unless I go to the toilet and hardly anything on a sanitary pad to soaking through six tampons in in wow. less than six hours. So it's kind of like it's only the first two days of period that I flood. And once I kind of get to day three, it slows down, but I'm still having to use the mammoth, the, the, the mammoth sized <laughs> tampons for, for, for my flow through the entirety of my periods until yeah. the last day where I can drop down to, to the smaller one. Yeah, it's yeah, it really does mess things up. It does change everything. But it, it I mean, silver lining is that I guess, well, for me, that I'm up and about probably like seven months post-op, so much better than I was pre-op. Yeah. I think like I explained to someone the other day, somebody was messaging me on Facebook and they was asking me about the hormonal issues after surgery. And I was like, you've got to remember, you've had a pretty major extensive surgery done. Your body goes into survival mode. Mm. Your body doesn't need hormones. Your body doesn't need periods. Your body just needs to repair. Yeah. Yeah, from the surgery that you've had done, once you've like nigh on recovered from that, everything else will follow. But best advice, if you are having hormonal issues and you are all over the place, if it's got to six months and it's still not easing, go to your GP. It could be a hormonal imbalance caused by the surgery. It could be age. It could be anything. Always better to go and get it checked. It's great that people message us and ask us these questions but we can only go based off our personal experience. I know yeah. for me, it took 18 months for everything to completely settle before I stopped being an absolute bitch bag. <laughs> I, think, I think that's the, the key thing though, isn't it? Is the fact that it, it dare I say, like you, you're going through stuff and you're still battling daily things and it likes to let you know that it's there and there's, there's but I wouldn't go back to the symptoms I was managing pre this protectomy surgery. So that's a good thing. I take it. Ultimately, you'd say it's definitely worth it. Would you do it all over again knowing what you know? 
Uh, yeah, because I wouldn't have gone through a bowel perforation if I knew what I knew now. True story. That's the key thing, and I would have it would have I would have recovered so much quicker. So I am an exception having a bowel perforation. So my key thing is just to help anybody else. Just please make sure, no matter what, you're given laxatives. No matter how young you are and healthy and fit before you go in, just take a, take make sure your team are putting you on laxatives because those opioids can really, you know, screw you up. And, you know, thank God my surgeon was my surgeon because, as I said, he literally saved my bacon. I've been through some shears. The stuff that happened when I was pregnant with Maisie, that was that was just pure roulette. That was, there was, that. there's no knowing that that was going to happen. Yeah. It is what it is. I can't change it. Would I change it? With her being in her teens and hormonal, sometimes think about it. <laughs> but no, I wouldn't change it because I've got a perfectly healthy child out of it. And and the thing is, it, whatever happened with my Crohn's journey and my Crohn's diagnosis, I still would have eventually have ended up with a stoma bag because of my fistulas and everything else that I had going on. It was just it was just a case of timing. Yeah, it happened at the worst possible time scenario with no baby everything else but I survived it I didn't die yeah, <laughs> survived my replacement kind of flat lined on the operating table but I was fine once oh. on ICU um third surgery obviously the proctectomy the major one obviously the issues that I had was that was just the fact that I went septic and my body just doesn't like being tinkered with I'm absolutely fine now would I change it no would I ask to have come off the pain relief a day or two earlier because the post-ophelia is most yeah. likely, but the amount of pain that I was in at the time, I don't think there's any way that would have happened. <laughs> I, I'm with you on that. And that's another thing, actually. My surgeon was really keen to get me off pain relief because he was like, you know, and I'm really keen to always come off for it. And then you get a, you get the visit from the pain relief team and they're like, oh no, you know, you need to like stay on it for at least another however long or whatever. And they're always keen to kind of keep you on. Mm. But I think... In hindsight as well, I would really put my foot down. And I have done ever since, but I've obviously not, not had massive surgery since. I've just had EUAs. Best advice That's I can no give idea. you is yeah. whatever ward you're on, get the matron on, get the matron on side. Mm-hmm. If the matron is on your side, she, she or he will do everything in their power to make sure that you're off of those meds sooner yeah. rather than later. Yeah. Because when I, the matron, when I had my temp replacement was the same matron that I had during my protectomy. And I was arguing with doctors on the morning rounds because my surgeon wasn't there. It was the GI doctors. And they were saying, I need, you need to stand the pain relief. And I'm like, but I don't want to stand the pain relief. Yeah. I want to come off of it. I'm hives. I'm itching. I'm scratching. Myself. Oh, that scratching is horrendous, yeah. isn't it? Um, I'm scratching myself raw and the matron come up and she said look she said I've had this patient before she come off the pain meds three days post-op last time she was absolutely yeah. fine um her really her ileus cleared up two days after she'd come off of them because I had the illness before as well yeah. so I come I come off of it but I don't know whether it, it whether it was because it was something different that I was on this time compared to the last surgery it just take it just took a lot longer to work out of my system yeah I think sometimes it does doesn't it but yeah I just I'm really happy to just get onto paracetamol, and mm-hmm. that's that's my best friend. Like I, I hate being on those those opioids. Um, they're not. I mean, look, you need them after that massive surgery. You definitely do. But um, as soon as you can get off them, I think and windle down, then that's it's going to be better for you. 
Yeah. The irony is, is I take codeine now, but it's not for pain. It's to control my stoma. <laughs> really? How, do, what does, how does it do that? It you up. It, it, it bungs you up. It slows down the output. Basically, right. if I have, oh, if I have yeah. basically, if I have any more stoma surgery, because I've got ulcers on the outside of my stoma at the moment, my yeah. surgeon said give the st- uh, Stellara six months. It's been six months. The ulcers are still coming back with friends. So I think I'm going to need a revision surgery. But yeah. I'm hoping that it's only on the outside and it's not further inside, because if it's further inside and I need to take it out, then I'm going to due genostomy territory. Right. Which will mean a permanent TPN line, Hickman line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I obviously try and do everything in my power to control it, but loperamide doesn't work for me. I can pop yeah. of those and it's still coming out like nobody's business. So okay. I use codeine and I take eight of those a day. Sometimes I wean back down to four in the winter because obviously I'm eating a lot more stodgy food. So yeah. sometimes I'll put stodges back up. But yeah, it's literally that the codeine is the only thing that controls my output. Wow. And uh, that's a mic drop moment there. That was a mic drop moment. Is that a (laughs) mic drop moment? Yeah, but that's that's the thing though, because a lot of people are like, oh, like addictive and everything else. I don't know. I don't know about addiction because. I'm I'm not trained in that, but it just makes me laugh at how easy it is to go to your GPs and get pain relief. It's you know, for my painful periods, they wanted to give me liquid morphine at home until I saw gyne and um and I was like, I'm not take I don't like thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to take that. I don't, you know, it's fine, but I'd rather deal with the pain for the week than be how am I gonna operate? On, yeah, that, that's on a heavy. That's a heavy option. And I, I'm just like, that's just insane. I'm not taking that. That's What's the other thing that you can get for bad periods, but the pharmacy won't give it to me because of um, my history with Crohn's disease? Oh, oh my sister takes that, and I can't remember what it's called. Does it begin with an N? Nexus or something? Is it something acid? Is it something acid? Proxin. It might be proxin. That's. I think that's a. I might Google that one. Yeah. All these meds—they just make me nauseous as hell, and I'd rather. So I'd rather. And also, I I am very much like, I want to feel the pain because then I know what's wrong with me. If I'm masking it all the time, I can't tell you when you come around at eight o'clock in the morning asking Mm. how I feel because I've been high as a kite on everything that you're giving me every four hours. So I need to feel what my body's doing because it's telling me what is wrong or what's going to happen next. Definitely. I think that's so crucial, right? I just don't want to suppress it all the time. It's quite funny you say that because I only go to A and E if I'm really, really bad, and you always get questioned about what meds you take because they're trying to work out whether or not you're trying. You're trying oh, to get trying free, to get ride, more, free yeah. ride for drugs. Yeah, I'm, I'm just here for the codeine. Thanks. <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. It was like when I went in for my abscess, I was in absolute freaking oh. agony, and they're like, "But you're still walking." I was like, "Well, of course I'm still walking. Yeah. I can function. Can you?" Yeah, yeah. I think um, that's the thing. You end up, you end up just on a day to day functioning. On, with all these things going on and then everybody's like oh well, you, you're fully recovered now you all look you look great like you're so brave going through all of that and it's just like well, not brave I had no choice like mm-hmm. you know, and, it, and it's that thing with like oh you're fighting you do this you do and it's just like all that language and everything as well I just yeah it's you do it because 
I, I don't do have laugh. a choice. I do laugh <laughs> because last time I was admitted into hospital, I'd had, I'd had my COVID vaccine on the Saturday and that had totally knocked me out. It was the Astra. Yeah. Started to feel kind of better by the Monday, Tuesday. And then I just went downhill again. So by Thursday, I was up at A&E and it's like, what did you do this morning? Joe Wicks workout, why? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you do know you're septic and you've got a massive lattice. <laughs> oh, is that what it is? I thought it was that. <laughs> this is the thing, right? You just end up getting used to that, how your body is. I mean, you've had it many, many years. I was I was only diagnosed like three years ago. Um, but yeah, you just... But going I think that's the problem surgery, though. Yeah, like what you say, it's like when you live with it for years and years and years, you just learn to cope with high levels of pain and you have a bigger threshold. Yeah. Like if you smack somebody straight into your life right now who has been perfectly healthy, they'd oh be any A and E like that. Yeah. And you're at home going, sure, you know, it's a new pain. I might go in if I, you know, fall on the floor tomorrow. But yeah. anyone else would have been down there two seconds before. You just get you learn to live with the higher pain threshold. Yeah. You learn to live with what your body's doing to you. It doesn't make it any less relevant when you go and see a doctor. So it's like yeah. well, it's, uh, I'm having massive pains with a cyst at the moment. My right side's swollen. I know it's a cyst, but I know if I go to A and E, I'm gonna get admitted and I'm not gonna escape for two or three weeks. Yeah. So I'm just kind of like I'm riding it out until after I get back off a holiday at the that's the thing like sometimes I think your body mind very much is as kind of like you know when they say to you all well, if you've been having temperatures so you know things are happening there's swellings there's this there's that and they're like well have you been having temperatures and I'm like no because the minute I have a temperature I know I need to be admitted so my body mm. just holds out and holds out until then it's like breaking point when a temperature comes. Whereas some people will get those warning signs of a temperature, um, and then they, you know, you, you can do what you need to do. But I normally get to breaking point at that time. Best clinical advice for anybody listening to this: don't do what we do. Wait <laughs> 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 Go in. <laughs> my husband, my husband likes to threaten to call my mum if I don't go. <laughs> this is probably a good thing. <laughs> no, it's not his grass. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Out. Oh, I, I get that one now. It is that, that's that, that's his that's his like that's his card in the whole day. Is that one? Ring your mum. Oh, no, I ring my mum. I'll go to the doctors. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's been great talking to you, ladies. This is yeah, this quite, quite an uh, illuminating podcast. But as I said, don't don't do what we do. Go to A&E. Go 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 yeah. to your GP. Seek seek please seek medical advice. Unless you've been at it for 20 years, <laughs> you know, yeah. body's going through, you know, you can kind of bring it until Monday because nobody likes a hospital admission, not at a weekend. <laughs> no, definitely not. Oh, bloody hell. I avoid it like the plague, don't you? Yeah, uh, I'd like to say massive, great big thank you to these two for taking part to Ellie and Ali. Um, their information will be provided for you to, if you wish to talk to them and message them with regards to proctectomy surgeries. One of the most common questions we get asked or messengers about after having the surgery done about whether or not it's safe to to proceed with sex and whether anything bad's going to happen. <laughs> I still remember that. I always does me. It's just, oh, that's a bit of a random message. We're getting a half nile at night. <laughs> oh. 
So yeah, thank you to everybody for listening to episode five of the Let's Talk podcast. Massive thank you to Ellie and Ali for taking part and sharing their journeys about proctectomy surgery. Trust me, it's not always bad. Um, There is the good, the bad and the ugly, which I think we quite covered. Ellie being good, me being bad and Ali being the ugly part. Um, So I think we've got that covered. Um, If you are interested in finding out more or wanting to sample the Pelican Mode of E-Pouch or any other products that they offer head over to their website www.pelicanhealthcare.co.uk and we are checking out for this podcast but we will be back for another one soon so if everybody wants to say bye bye, bye. bye. thank you you're welcome thank you